0: Our reading this morning carries on in our series in the book of Romans, and we pick up in the second half of Romans chapter 4. That's Romans chapter 4, reading from verse 13 to 25. And there we read, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Well, it's Pam Sunday. And on that Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, nearer, near enough, Jesus enters Jerusalem with much fanfare. Hundreds of people are there ready to proclaim him as their king. A vast multitude, we're told, of his disciples uh, gather and seek to um, to praise him and to worship him, and do so to such a degree that the Pharisees, at the end of our reading in Luke, um, clearly feel the need to rebuke Jesus and his followers. They're making too much of him, and it's bordering on blasphemy, and so they call for him to rebuke his disciples, although Jesus won't do it. We find that they're ready to push out the authorities To have Jesus installed as king, not just over the Jews, but perhaps even to take his place and to move the Romans out as well. And uh, for the Jews to finally be set free as it was their hope the Messiah would come and do. These people are ready to capture the world for God. They are strong people. They are confident people. Clearly, they are faith-filled people, given what they say. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are a hopeful people. And yet, we know that in a few short days, he will be howled at in the street by some of these people. They will be calling for his execution and all of these disciples will have abandoned him and fled leaving him to face the authorities all on his own. Now we might like to think that if we were in that situation as we put ourselves in by giving voice to some of those words at the beginning of our service if we were part of those crowds calling out that this is our king that we would have done a little better. We would have stayed a bit more faithful. We would have uh, would have supported Jesus, we would have been there for him, and yet, for as much as I think we would all say that with a degree of earnestness, I doubt that we would. These men, and I'm sure there were women as part of his wider circle following him, knew Jesus well. They had seen, the passage said, amazing things done by Jesus, and yet they fled. We find later in Matthew's gospel, after his resurrection, when he begins appearing to a huge number of disciples, 500 at one time, we are told, that even then, before he ascends into heaven, his disciples are gathered together with him. They see him. They know he was dead. And yet, Matthew tells us, still some doubted. It's a huge challenge to us. We're no better than they were. People are the same everywhere. There is nothing new under the sun, uh, so says Ecclesiastes. In fact, more than that, there are uh, no new people under the sun. People are the same everywhere. We're no different. The problem with Jesus' disciples and all the others who gather to adore him when he enters into Jerusalem is that they felt strong, but their faith actually was quite weak. They might have had a great strength that was concealing, a sort of outward strength that was concealing great weakness on the inside, which when the chips were down, when Jesus was pressed upon by the authorities and pursued and arrested, all of a sudden that great outward show of strength revealed a great inner weakness as they all fled and abandoned the only one who was able to achieve the one thing that they had been desperately yearning for. That they've been proclaiming, he will come and do. They were weak and needed strong faith to see them through. And so it is today, we are weak and need strong faith to see us through. And maybe you feel the same way this year. Maybe you feel that you believed you were strong, and yet the events of this past year have revealed uh, weakness within you. COVID has revealed all sorts of doubts, hasn't it? I've heard so many people talking about the doubts they've had about their faith or about God that this sort of thing could happen. How is it possible? I've heard people express worries about their confidence in God, about the security of their faith, worries that we never had or we never knew that we had before, but in the face of physical threat of infection, of sickness, and death, all of these worries and anxieties have bubbled to the surface and have begun to cause a real sense of doubt in us. Paul tells us that, indeed, our, um, our approach to life so often appears strong and yet reveals great weakness in us what we need in order to be truly strong is faith. Paul spent three chapters in Romans talking, hasn't he, about how all these people, both Jews and Gentiles, though they appear to be confident in control, strong in life, are actually sinners and are walking in the opposite direction to the one they claim they're walking in. And now he has been holding up in Romans chapter 4, Abraham as the great exemplar uh, of faith. Not that Abraham is perfect, that we should be like him, but he believes in a perfect God, and that is whom we should pursue as Abraham uh, pursued. Paul tells us about our faith this week, what it is not, and what it ought to be. And he helps us to put our present situation in context, so that we might be strong, even through the most difficult and dire of circumstances. And he tells us um, in our section this week, beginning in verse 13, that our strength lies not in who we are, not in our nature or our character, but in what we are given. This is the first great challenge to us because we want to be strong. We want to be confident. We want to be in control. And Paul makes it clear that that simply isn't the case. It's not been the case for anyone that God has called. And so he appeals to Abraham. And in verse 13, he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law and Abraham's obedience to the law through his strength, through his character, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul tells us um, that Abraham was heir to the whole world, not because of his ability, but because of the one in whom he put his faith, and that faith, because it was in God, was counted to him as righteous. And so we find that this promise that's given to Abraham, and we find on through verse 14 into the rest of the passage, to his offspring is delivered on the basis of faith. But who are his offspring? For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, who is the offspring? Well, Paul's already dealt with that in the previous half of chapter 14, hasn't he? He's reminded us that we are all true children of Abraham if we share that same faith. That Abraham had. Not that we put our faith in Abraham or that we try to be like Abraham, but that the faith he had in God is the same faith that we have in God. That God will be our Savior, that God will be sufficient for us, that God will forgive us our sins if we ask Him to. And God does through the sending of Jesus. Jesus comes and pays for our sins on the cross, if we remember from uh, chapter 3 into chapter 4, so that God might be just and punish sin in Jesus and not in us, and be the justifier of many, so that we are raised up to life. We are um, those who have had our sins removed and paid for and now stand right before God because there's nothing left for us to pay for. It has all been dealt with by Jesus. And in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 4, Paul reminds us that we are all, in light of that faith, the offspring of Abraham, regardless of whether we are Jews or Gentiles, it makes no difference. And so we find that the promise to Abraham and to his offspring those who placed their faith in Christ for their salvation, that he would be heir of the world, didn't come through the law but the righteousness of faith. The heir of the world. What is Abraham heir of? Because God at no point in the Old Testament, in Genesis, in any of the times he met with Abraham, promised him the world. Well, we find in this Paul summarizing two things. Firstly, summarizing what God promises Abraham in Genesis, so in Genesis 17, for example, where God meets with Abraham and promises that Abraham, building on chapter 12 and on chapter 15, will be the father of a great nation, a nation beyond numbering. The stars and the heavens, the sand on the seashore, so shall the number of your children be. They will be innumerable, But this is impossible because Abraham's old and has no children, and Sarah can't have children, and they're both advancing in years. And God promises that they will be a nation, that they will be set apart for him, and he will be particularly concerned with them. He will devote himself to them, and they will devote themselves to him. He will be their God, they will be his people. He will give them a place of rest, a land in which to belong, that will um, be somewhere for them to be safe and secure, to be his people in. And they will be a great blessing to all the nation's of the world. And summarizing all of these things, Paul is saying God is promising Abraham what? Everything. The world. Now, this is not just Paul binding together all of these promises. It's also Paul giving expression to something which had become part of the Jewish understanding round about the time uh, of, of Jesus and of Paul's ministry of of the the writing of these letters, and that was uh, that the promise to Abraham of uh, a a land and a nation and and, uh, to be the source of a blessing for everything was, in fact, a promise to inherit the entire world. We find this in other Jewish writings outside of the Old Testament that it had become relatively common for the Jews to understand that this is actually the end of the promise to Abraham. And we can understand that, can't we? in light of um, all that Jesus came and accomplished, we find that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The whole world will be reformed and made new and brought in submission to Christ ultimately. And so Paul is expressing that here neatly, succinctly. And when he does so, we find that this promise comes first to Abraham, but then also to us. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And that's a big challenge for us, as it was for the folks in Paul's day. But how does this come to us? Well, John Stott very helpfully put it this way in his uh, little commentary, uh, devotional commentary on this passage, he says that it comes down to faith. Not obedience to the law, but to faith. That's what Paul says. And John Stott says this, the language of law that says you shall demands obedience, but the language of promise that says I will demands our faith. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, is God is is. Uh, making Abraham the heir to these promises, not because of his obedience to the law that says, you must obey X, Y, and Z, otherwise I will take these promises away. He is saying to Abraham, I will deliver these promises to you. Therefore, put your faith in me that I will do as I have said. And so we find ourselves as the offspring of Abraham bound up in these same things. It is not our obedience to the law that sees us receive these great blessings. It is our trust that God has said he will do it. That is what the challenge for us is today, to live in light of, and this is the source of our strength. Because if it's all bound up in, you shall obey the law, then it comes down to how well we can do it, how strong our character is, how holy and righteous we are. And Paul spent three chapters saying we're not holy and righteous. It can't be done. Instead, we must understand that obedience to the law is good, but it comes secondary. It comes after our faith, because God has said, I will. I will deliver these promises to you and then go and live lives characterized by your trust in my promise, and we'll come on to that later in the passage. Do we see the amazing nature of that and these promises? Nationhood, a people to belong to, we are saved into a family that love us and support us and care for us, that we are given a place of rest, not simply a piece of land at the end of the Mediterranean, but we are given the whole world in which to live. Wherever we go, we are God's people. And wherever we gather together with other people like us, we are part of one family worshiping God, and we are given a God to worship, and we do so by going out into the world and being a blessing to the nations. This is amazing. This defines our whole lives. It puts everything we do into perspective. There is no angst for us about what God wants me to do. Does he want me to go and be a dentist or to be a street sweeper or should I maybe not work at all and, and give my time to raising kids or, or, or grandkids? Or For us, there is no real sense, I think, of anxiousness about is God wanting me to do this or that? That we are given the freedom to go into whatever area of life is before us, as seems best to us, knowing that wherever we go, we are to be a nation set apart for God, not like the world, given over to worship and praise wherever we go, whatever we do, and to be a blessing to the nations by spreading the good news of the gospel that completely reorganizes our whole lives. And do we labor to know these promises here and now and acknowledge that we'll never receive them in full until Christ returns, but to recognize that we are to see these things worked out here in Ladywell, in Livingston, in West Lothian, or wherever it is you are, that we are to to bless our brothers and sisters because we've been transformed by an amazing Savior who's taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh so that we can love and live for God and do so by serving one another. That we are able to, to truly rest, to know the presence of God, the freedom from fear of sin and death, but the freedom of all the anxiety of knowing who I am and where I'm going. I know who I am. I am Christ's, and I know where I'm going. Whatever I do, I serve him and worship him. And I get to be a blessing to those around me by spreading his gospel in words and in deed. Do we labor to know these promises that are received by faith for our good, for our blessing, but much more for the glory of God? Our strength doesn't lie in how well we obey but in the one that we place our trust in. He has said he will do this. He will place us somewhere for a purpose, and he has done. Do we trust in that God so that wherever we are and whatever we go through, we will be sustained, knowing he is leading us for his plans and his purposes? Our strength then grows by receiving the promises of God by faith. In verse 14 through to 22, Paul tells us that our faith in God through Christ is how we receive the inheritance promised to Abraham. But what does that actually mean practically? Putting our faith in God, Paul tells us, is trusting that he will do as he said, which then leads to our obedience. This is where the law fits in. It reveals our sinfulness, but it also is then a guide for us to live by now that we have put our faith in Christ for our salvation. If what God has said is true, and we are to have Abraham's faith, then this leads to a number of implications. We are to put away sin, to repent of our sins, to confess them to God, and to ask for forgiveness. This is the means by which we uh, have ourselves put right by God, because what holds us back from following God is sin. And that is what God sends Jesus to deal with. And so as we repent, as we desire to put sin away and turn from it and live a new kind of life, so we begin to express our faith. We begin to live it out, to work it out. We ask for forgiveness. It is the beginning, the grounds of our faith. We find that we then are called to love God and rely upon him to deal with our sin and strengthen us. And we find this very much marked in Abraham's life. So at the beginning of Abraham's journey with God, as God begins to establish his covenant with him, um, God makes a covenant by uh, separating, taking these animals, cutting them in two, and going through the pieces of these animals, which is a very ancient way of uh, agreeing something with someone, making a covenant with someone if I break my promise to you, may I be chopped up like these animals have been chopped up. That's the idea. And God, in that passage in Genesis, doesn't go with Abraham through the pieces of the animal as two people swearing together. God goes alone. So that if Abraham breaks the covenant promise, or if his heirs break the covenant promise, we find it is God who will be the one who bears the penalty. And so it is. So we break covenant with God, we break the promises of God, Abraham breaks covenant with God through uh, failures and frustrations, and God is the one who then is stricken for our sins, for Abraham's sins. We turn from those sins And we then rely upon that God and we see Abraham recognizing that he is an old man. He has no children of his own. His wife cannot have children. It is impossible for them to have children. And yet they love God and rely upon him to deal both with their sin, but to strengthen them because they've been given something to do by God and it's beyond their ability to accomplish. Abraham knows this. It comes out with some of his conversations with God. Uh, what am I supposed to do? How is this supposed to work? I don't have any children, God, and the promises are all going to fail because of it. And so we find Abraham relying upon God, and loving him, placing his confidence in him. And then we find him serving God that Abraham might grow and see the promises actually worked out. And so it is with us. We serve God so that we might grow in our faith and in our understanding and see his kingdom expand. And we find that uh, in these verses that Abraham did not weaken in faith when he saw how impossible it was for them to claim the promises of God. No unbelief, verse 20, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that he was able to do, that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness— And so we find Abraham entering into all the circumstances of his life in the knowledge that as he serves God, God will work things out. I don't know how it's going to work out, but he does. And so he grows in the strength of his faith. And this gives glory to God that one who can't see how the end could possibly come continues on in that path. And so God's kingdom grows, we find the sun does come, and today we see that the blessing of that, that a number almost beyond counting in all of those millennia since Abraham walked this earth have become part of God's family. It's not going to be easy. We know that from Abraham's life. Look at all the things he has to deal with. He has to leave everything in Ur of the Chaldeans, traveling all over the ancient world. He becomes a nomad. He has to have children, which he can't have. He has to then, when Isaac eventually does come and this great blessing is brought into his life, God calls him to sacrifice his only son, which surely means the end of the very promises God has given to him. It's just impossible situation after impossible situation. And yet we know for all of the difficulties Abraham endures, the division within his family between Sarah and Hagar, one of the servants of his household, and the having a child with Hagar, which then results in great strife, and all of that doesn't cause him to waver. He did fail from time to time. There were ugly Parts of his life and his experience, and yet the pattern, the trend of his life was always in one direction. He grew in his faith and in his strength and glorified God as a result as he walked through it all. And as we cling to God in hard situations, it is the same for us, that our strength grows by receiving the promises of God, not in light of our obedience, but by faith. We cannot see how it will possibly come about that God will lead us through this circumstance because it's so difficult, and yet he does. We cannot understand how God could take this thing from me, whatever it might be, a job, um, a career path, a, a home, a family member, whatever and yet it is our faith in God that he will lead us on and although it seems impossible to us it is not impossible to him and so we give glory to God as we hold on to the promises of God confident that we can't deliver them ourselves but God can because impossible situations make no difference to God and so we glorify him And not only that, we grow in strength. Because when we look back over our lives, we remember episodes where everything seemed against us. It seemed impossible that we could carry on, that God could be at work in any of those things. And yet we realize now with hindsight, God was there the whole time. He was at work in it all. And so our experience and our wisdom grows. And so does our faith. Because we are much more confident now. We've seen the waves of difficulty come and none of them have overwhelmed us. And so, our strength that begins in what is given to us by God, the promises of God, grows through the receipt of those promises by faith. And then lastly, our strength is deepened by applying God's character to God's promises, because this is what faith ultimately is. Paul tells us that Abraham was reckoned righteous because of his faith in God. He went through impossible situations, humanly speaking, and his faith was worked out by looking at God's character from the beginning of all his dealings with Abraham. Abraham has been promised amazing things by God, and God has never gone back on a promise, ever, even though they seemed impossible. God hasn't gone back on a promise. God has always provided ways for Abraham to fulfill God's desires. Even though Abraham has flapped around and made mistakes at times, there has always been a way for him to be faithful. God has always provided that means, even though it may have cost Abraham a lot, the way was always there. God has protected Abraham through many situations where in a moment his circumstances could have changed. The Pharaoh of Egypt could have had him executed on a whim. Abimelech could have had him um, stripped of all his wealth just on a whim. And yet we find that God carried Abraham through, protected him, preserved him, and saw his promises worked out. And God had upheld Abraham and his family, even though Abraham had struggled and at times failed God. This is perhaps the most telling thing. Abraham had doubted. Abraham had questioned. He hadn't understood. He tried to work it out in his own strength, and it had all gone horribly wrong. Look at the situation with Ishmael. They tried to figure out how to bring along a son instead of relying on God to work out his promises and it ended terribly. Hagar and Ishmael are cast out and become a thorn in the side of Israel forever, even down to today. And we see also in that story that God upholds his family even when they are rejected and put out by Abraham. Ishmael is still blessed because he's a son of Abraham's, even though it resulted in great difficulty for God's people. Abraham dwells on these characteristics of God, his faithfulness, his steadfastness, his unending love towards Abraham and his family, and is then able to look forward into God's promises as yet to be fulfilled in Abraham's day that Abraham would never actually see fully worked out and know that God will carry them through. And so his faith grows deeper. This leads Abraham to stay faithful, to live upright, righteously in hard situations because his confidence is not in himself, but in the Lord who never failed him, though he failed the Lord many times. And this is the story of Israel through the Old Testament, the church in the new, and our experience today. We fail God many times, and yet God stays faithful. This is most fully expressed, Paul tells us, in Jesus' In the closing few verses from 23 uh, through to 25, that Jesus is delivered up to death for our sins and then is raised up to new life for our righteousness, for our justification, for our being made right in an ongoing way with God. This is the length that God will go to to be faithful to his covenant people, all who believe the offspring of Abraham, heirs with him of the promises, of God. And when we think on these things and as we apply God's character to our circumstances and his promises of what is to come, we find what? Promises of final saving faith before his throne that we will be completely secure in God's hands, even in light of his final and terrible judgment, that judgment on sinners will fall everywhere for all time. Not one sinner will ever be let off For his sin, unless he places his faith in Christ as we have. So, justice will reign perfectly and finally and fully, even when we experience gross injustice today. And gross injustice is being experienced by God's people today, is it not? The laws of our own land express that as they're beginning to put into practice hate crime bills and so on. There are persecutions against the church all over the world. All of that will be taken. To task and an answer must be given finally and fully. And the upholding of God's people is promised, their sanctification. Paul says earlier on in the passage that um, where there is no law, there is no transgression. What he means by that is don't write off the law as being a terrible thing because it you know, makes you aware of sin. Where there is no law, you're completely unaware of your sin. It's essential that you have the law to reveal your sin to you, and the aim of that is not to crush you under a weight of guilt and shame, but to lead you to confession and to walking in righteousness, to putting away what is shameful, and now walking with a clean and an upright heart. The Lord will sanctify his people. He will justify them finally and fully, and that is the new life that we have in Christ. As he is risen, we are risen in him. We are made able to carry on through really hard circumstances, not because we're strong, but because we are weak. The law tells us that. But we have faith in one who is strong for us all. So we need not abandon our faith and give in to sinful thoughts and behaviors when something tempting comes along. God says you're not to do these things, and he does so as the one who knows me. He knows me the best. He knows my situation the best. He knows where he wants me to be, where I ought to be going, and what he's equipping me for, and so I can place my confidence in him. I want to do these things so much. They seem so appealing, but I know it cannot be right under any circumstances because God has said so, and so I put my faith in him and can overcome temptation. It will be hard, but it can be done. We need not abandon our faith when hardships befall us, when we're pressed on by people outside and in the current environment that we're living in. It's very tempting for us to play down our faith because we're all frightened of being persecuted for the things that we believe which are not very popular today. Our views about um, the nature of gender and of maleness and of femaleness, of marriage and of all of these things are, are not popular. And it's understandable for us to be pressed upon and to want to to just soft-pedal these things a little bit or just pray that no one ever answers so we just don't have to say. But God knows us and will lead us through the other side of difficult times because his plans and his purposes are being worked out in our lives, and that is what is most important. That is what our faith is in, not our own strength or our own comfort that we might love God and glorify him in every circumstance. And his word tells us what will bring that about best. The world doesn't tell us the right answer to that question. How do we glorify God? So we need not abandon him in the face of temptation, or in the face of hardship, or in the experience of loss. Abraham experienced all of these things And he failed and he succeeded just as we fail and just as we succeed. But when we go through loss, the temptation for us is to question what on earth God is doing. How could he possibly allow this to happen? And yet God has given us all things for his purposes and his glory. Has he not? God has given us all things that we might serve him and glorify him with them. So when he takes them away, they belong to him in the first place. God knows what we need and why we need it, and that doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. I don't want you to, to feel that there is a callousness to my words or to what God is doing when sometimes things very dear to us are taken away and we feel the agony of loss. Our health is not our own. Our families are not our own. Our money, our possessions, our place in this world and society are not our own and when they're taken away, it's right that we continue to glorify God, for the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord for he is accomplishing his plans and his purposes. Though we would like to think, going back to the very beginning, that we were better than the disciples who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem and then abandon him or call out for his crucifixion as he um, then goes on to, we probably aren't, because we, like them, are not strong. We want people to think we're strong, but we're not. We want to think we're strong ourselves, but we're not. We're weak, but we have a strong Saviour. So let us overcome, let us conquer all things this week, not by our strength, but in the faith that is given us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us, for the many blessings that you have poured into our lives as you poured into the life of Abraham. And Lord God, help us to see that our success in Claiming those promises and receiving them is not our ability to do well and to earn them. Paul has made so much effort to to have that notion torn away from us, and yet we cling to it because we want to do well. We want to be seen as strong. Lord God, help us to see that we are indeed weak and we need a strong Savior and we need faith in him. And we thank you, Lord, that we do have faith in a strong, a mighty Savior who has conquered sin and death and gives us these great blessings as part of our faith in him. Lord, send us out this week, Lord, to do all things in the faith that you have given us, in Christ Jesus, who was able to do what we were not able to do. So, Lord, help us to walk in our faith and to be your faithful children. And, Lord God, we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.